It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 688 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. I've got a fun show lined up for today. Joining me is my friend Tibor Shanto. Tibor is the founder and CRO of Renbor Sales Solutions, based in Toronto. I think he's maybe the CEO as well. And he's co-author of a book titled Shift, Harness the Trigger Events that Turn Prospects into Customers. Now, today we're talking about objective-based selling. And among the topics Tibor and I are going to dig into include defining what objective-based selling is and how you can use it to develop new customers based on their goals, what they're trying to achieve rather than their pain points. And anybody that follows me knows I agree with that 100%. It's all about people invest with an eye in the future, not for putting a Band-Aid on things that happened in the past. We'll also dig into why it's essential for sellers to really understand the buyer's business independent of the product they sell. Right? That's often sort of the depth of knowledge reps have about how our product can help you. They need to have a bigger, more global understanding of the customer's business. And we're also going to talk about why your buyers are experiencing longer buying cycles. And the hint there is it's not really the buyer's fault. So all that and much, much more. Now, before we get to Tibor, I want to talk with you about the sales house. Now, I created the sales house for one reason, and that's to help you learn how to close more deals. I mean, it's really that simple. The sales house will give you the confidence you need to take on any account, any opportunity in sales, and give you the knowledge, the wisdom, and the advice you need to effectively qualify and close these best sales opportunities. To do that, you get access to me with multiple coaching calls every week, bring your tough sales challenges. We'll talk through them. We'll help you close these deals. You get unlimited access to a growing library of courses to help you learn how to master essential sales skills, not to mention access to a roster of world-class experts sharing their expertise in our weekly live workshops. And of course, you get access to an entire community of like-minded sales professionals just like you that you can tap for advice. So the good news is sales is a tough business, but you don't have to sell alone. That's the good news. You don't have to sell alone. You can succeed. We can help. So come invest a few minutes a day in the sales house. Visit thesaleshouse.com or thesaleshouse.com forward slash join. I look forward to seeing you in the house. Okay, here we go. T. Warshanto, welcome to the show. Always fun to be back, Andy. How are you? Great, Don. Great. How about you? Good. No complaints at all. Wait, no? Rested and ready to go. No complaints at all? Well, you know, no ready complaints. I'm sure you'll. I'm sure you'll get me to talk about a few. But yeah, I was gonna say we gotta have some complaints. My, my goodness, yeah. none that spring to mind. <laughs> All right. So quickly for people who may not be familiar with who you are, what you do, why don't you give us a little bit of background on you? So I uh, I run a company called Renbor Sales Solutions. Although you can best find me at tiborshanto.com. I thought I'd make it easier. Yeah, I was gonna um, say time to shutter that whole Renbor thing. Yeah, so let's go with, I'm Tibor Shanto. So I work with B2B companies primarily focused on new business acquisition. So if you're looking for somebody to help you with account management, I'm probably not your best bang for the buck. But if you're looking for somebody to bring people into your company, people that you have to go out and engage and entice and persuade, then I'm probably your guy. And I focus a lot on the front end of the process. And the work that I do is based on an approach that I call objective-based selling, which really puts more of an emphasis on 
where the customer is looking to be as opposed to what their current pain points are. I'm not big on pain needs or solutions. Well, let's let's so, dive into that for a second because I agree with you 100%, by the way. I, I, <laughs> I think pain points are stupid. I mean, I'm just going to go right out and say that. I mean, you know, for companies, if you're a seller and you're training your sales team to go out and ask people, you know, find out what keeps them up at night, you're not going to get the answer that's going to lead you to a solution that that makes you the winner at the end of the day. No, it's probably the dog next door that's keeping them up. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, and, and I think the problem is, is that it's the easiest and most visible sale that's out there. So there's a lot of focus and emphasis on it. But it's such a small segment of the market. And I think you and I have talked about it before, so I'm not going to go deep into it. But if you look at any given market, mine or a manufacturer's, what have you, at any given time, there's a very small percentage who are actually in real pain or real need or in quest of a solution. Um, you know, and generally, it's a short-term type of thing, and they still have longer-term objectives behind that. So even if you could capture everybody that's in pain, you're probably not going to have enough to make quota. No, but I mean, I've, in my experience, and I've sold everything from computers to small businesses to communication systems and sell for tens of millions of dollars. I can't really ever recall a situation where someone made it a sizable investment in a new product or service based on fixing a pain point as opposed to trying to make an investment that they want a good return on that's going to achieve a certain outcome or objective. And I think this goes back partly to something you and I talked about before, and I don't know if it was something that we were talking about informally or in context of, of the podcast, but this thing that I call the disintermediation of sales. Um, and so if you look at a lot of SaaS companies, especially ones that sit on top of Salesforce and all that, they're generally a single function. I don't want to say one trick pony, we'll call it single function. So they know what pain they're looking for. They're not interested in anything else the customer has to say because they can't add anything to that conversation. So I'm not saying it's right, but I can understand why their management winds them up and say, thou shalt go and look for this pain. And that's the only thing that they go and look for as opposed to winding them up and going out there and helping their customers achieve business objectives. Sure. Well, yeah. And maybe that explains why the you know sort of overall performance of sales in SaaS environments isn't isn't very good. You know their close rates are you know run about twenty percent, and mm. yeah, that's a business that's based on let's fill that top of the funnel with as many opportunities as we can, and we're just going to play the numbers game, and we're going to execute what I believe is relatively poorly over, and so we don't need to pay as much attention to. Some of what we're talking about because, yeah, we just got this sort of infinite flow at the top of the funnel. Yeah, it's really, does this square peg fit my square hole? And if it does, great. If not, then I'm not going to spend more time with it, which I think brings us to the level or quality of some of the other things in terms of what they do once they engage with a customer or a prospect. Yeah. Well, let's let's dive a little bit into Discovery and qualification. We've we sort of touched on this somewhat before, but to me, this is really sure. an increasingly important topic because when I look at a company's performance on sales, and they have either a high rate of opportunities to go to no decision, which is certainly endemic to B two B sales these days, or they have a relatively low close rate, a lot of SaaS companies, and so on, is 
I look at discovering qualification as, hey, that's really where the problem starts, right? Because A, we're not doing a good job of really discovering what their true objectives are or what they want to achieve. And we're not qualifying them by by understanding what their objectives are and then linking our value to their objectives to make sure that we can be a fit. Right. hundred percent. So I think that, again, I, because I'm probably not being fair, but it will probably cause some questions. Good. I sort of think that most, most of the guys are out there running around with a set of mirrors and they keep holding it up to the customer until the customer sees himself. And they say, yeah, that's me. And they think that they're qualified where to me, that's not qualifying. It's certainly not discovery. Um, so I think that one of the things that sales organizations need to do a bit differently is in addition to which pain points and which things we, we deliver value against is what's the context of that in the individual's day-to-day work and what's the context of that in the overall business that that, that that customer is trying to run. And I think a lot of salespeople don't get too far beyond their product. And as a result, they have difficulty doing discovery because they don't understand why the customer is buying their product other than what's in the brochure. Yeah. Well, and then they, as part of discovery, they're not doing what they need to do is ask the questions to truly understand what that is. I mean, so you and I believe along some similar lines uh, in terms of sort of this. I think you call it a gap analysis, um, and I think I call it somewhat the same thing in terms of helping people discover, discover, sales reps discover what it is the buyer wants to achieve with the investment in this product or service. And and then having done that, though, I think the step that gets missed is, and we'll go back and cover it in more detail, is that they then don't put a value on it. So... My way of thinking, if if you're in sales, and I certainly this is what I use to sell everything I sold, is is yeah, okay, you want to achieve this, Mr. Prospect or Ms. Prospect. These are this is your objective. Well, let's let's quantify that. What is the dollar value of that? And so then when we do sort of the simple gap analysis, say, okay, this is where you are today, this is where you want to be. If this is where you want to be, I know what the dollar impact of that is. I know what the cost of my system is. I can now have this conversation with you about whether or not it's justified. Yeah. And again, I think you're certainly right. I think that that's one of my big pet peeves is that a lot of salespeople can't quantify what they contribute to that customer's business. And I think part of it comes back to that. I'm not sure that they understand their customer's business or business in general. Um, so I think we spend a lot of time teaching our people about the product and some low-level, we'll call them qualification or discovery questions, but we don't spend any time teaching them on how to help the customer associate what we're talking about with things that they were thinking about in their business independent of us. So I think we've spoken before that I truly recommend to people that they go out there and read either the 10-day MBA or something like it. So they could actually understand what the thought process is of the customer that they're trying to sell to. Because most of them are wound up to go and talk to things in context of their product, not in context of any business process. Or, you know, if they're talking to a quality assurance person in a manufacturing plant, what should they be talking to them about beyond the specs of their product and the nice shiny chrome on the corner of the product? <laughs> so 
You said they should go do a 10-day MBA? No, there's a book out there that for years I've been touting, the guy should pay me royalties, um, that I came across when I was selling probably about 20 years ago. And it was called the 10-day MBA. And me being lazy, I figured better 10 days than, you know. <laughs> Two years. <laughs> several yeah. years. Before, so. But what it got me to think about, and I haven't memorized it, but I remember what it got me to think about. And then it just so happened that it was at the same time that I was introduced to a selling system that I think is still out there. I think at that time it was called Value Vision, and now it's called Value Selling, which really put a lot of emphasis on what is the business trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And it got you to think about business as opposed to sales, right? So forget sales, forget your product, forget a lot of things. What is a business consistent? What is, why does a CEO make the decisions that he or she does? Or why does a VP of marketing go the direction that she chooses to go? What are the thought processes? And the great thing is, other than sales, most functions in a company have some sort of MBA you know, program that you can go to. So they give you the roadmap for how to have a conversation with the person you're trying to sell to. So if they go out there and get the 10-day MBA and spend 10 days reading it, they could have much more quality conversations. And even if nothing else, the person that they're speaking to will feel that they're talking to a different quality salesperson. And that in itself will encourage them to open up more. Because I think sometimes prospects are afraid to open up because they don't think that the person at the other, at the other end of the table is going to understand what they're saying. And after a few right. times of being burnt, they just stop talking. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I think that that one of the critical things about qualification that that sales reps and sales organizations miss is that they don't qualify with the right people. Because again, to your point, you're talking about is if the goal of qualification is and discovery is to be able to understand what the goals and objectives of the organization, the, you know, the buying organization is, to be able to quantify what the the value impact or the dollar impact of that is. Yeah, you can't really do that with a low-level person. You can't do that with the person that's necessarily just there prepared to speak to you. You have to have somebody that really has an understanding of the strategic context for the investment they're making in your product or service. I'll tell you an interesting thing. I do an exercise in almost all my workshops with clients where I say to them, let's say we met at a trade show and I looked like a prospect, but my name tag was turned around, so you couldn't really tell who I was. And we got into a conversation in the coffee line, and I asked you, you know, what you do, and we got into it, and it turns out I'm in sales, and the prospect or the person asks you, what do you sell? And because they might be a prospect or a potential customer, you want to give them the best response that you can. And I have the participants tell me what they sell, and I would say 90% of the stuff that I get back is defined in deliverables, software, hardware, services, consulting, recruitment. It's mm. always in that deliverable which speaks to what you're saying because they learn the language of the people that they hang out with, which means they're hanging out with people who strictly deal with the deliverables, mm -hmm. generally will not make the decision around how those deliverables are used and things along those lines. But when you try and get them to talk about what's the upside for the company to have those deliverables once you've sold it to them, they can't align it to other business things like productivity or financial elements beyond revenue. Like you try and talk to them, does your product impact their financial structure that might be able to change the way that they borrow money from for future projects mm -hmm. or whatever the case is? All basic business concepts, right? Like it's not like we're asking them to do Nobel Prize stuff, 
but they can't talk to that. So they're stuck around the product. So they won't talk to people who respond well to product talk as opposed to how can I help you achieve your objectives? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, again, this is, this is one of the issues that you see is that sellers think that, you know, we can follow sort of a safe step. We've got our stages laid out. And I see this in companies, they have their stages, they have their stage exit criteria, so how they migrate from one stage to the next. But they're missing some critical points, which is they think that, hey, we can qualify based by talking to somebody who doesn't have responsibility at any sort of real level for the product or the achievement of the objectives themselves, doesn't really maybe understand the strategic context or can't speak authoritatively about the the strategic context of the investment they're making. And so what happens is we get a qualification that takes place that's yeah, not really a qualification. And discovery that's not really a true representation of what maybe the charter, the executive team, executive team set out for what they're trying to, again, trying to achieve at that uh, particular time to you know position themselves to market share gain or revenue growth or whatever it is over the succeeding, succeeding year or two. Yeah, and I think what they call discovery is really just check marks, right? So they, mm-hmm. they think that they're going to go out and discover whether this client fits the product mm-hmm. as opposed to going out there and discovering what is the client trying to achieve and then align our so-called value prop with with uh, with that. But I think there's probably other issues involved in terms of how we define value and things like that. And I think that this notion of value proposition is forcing people because proposition is still proposing. So I know it's more genteel than unique selling value and all that, but I think that people need to look at value from the customer's end because to your point, Customers don't have a set, you know, buying cycle and they don't have it rate out of stages like we do or else Salesforce would sell them something to to fit that, right? Well, yeah. I mean, why why do you – I always find it funny when you hear sales teams talk about understanding the buying cycle and blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, you're selling a product that they buy once every 10 years. So they don't have that documented. It's not an established procedure and process. They're not going to spend the time to do that. And, you know, there's uh, some numbers that came out of Trust Radius last year, and there's some other studies that came out along the same lines that, and it's an opportunity along the lines of what you're saying, that buyers are finding that their buying cycles are taking twice as long as they anticipated going in. Mm -hmm. Part of that is, as you're saying, 10 years ago, it might have taken them three months to buy it, so they figured it's going to take the same amount of time now, but the market's changed. But I think part of it is that if we did a better job at discovery as salespeople, we would actually help the customers to think. But I think that our discovery questions are not getting the customers to think, so they're not any further ahead after they haven't met with us. All they know is that they fit our profile, but we haven't really moved their thought process forward at all. And that's why I think it's taking longer for them to make decisions. Whereas if we can understand why it's taking them longer to make decisions and address those things through discovery. And again, you and I have talked about this before. A good discovery is sort of like a game of Jeopardy. You know, you know what sort of the answers you're looking for are. It's what's the question that you have to ask to, to get mm-hmm. you know, some movement around that. But I think that to me, there's a natural opportunity. The customer is taking twice as long to buy or to make a decision. And I'm doing a poor job of discovery. If I could move my, quality of discovery, I could probably help the customer reduce that cycle and add even greater value. Well, I think if you 
Well, excuse me. I was just going to say, I think if you can reduce the length of the sales cycle, the buying process, that you then also start reducing some of the no decision decisions that get made as well. I think if people feel it takes too long, it's too frustrating to get the information they need to be able to make a decision, then they just say, okay, we just won't make it right now. You know, I think CB had some interesting stuff a few years ago that talked to where decisions break down from a customer point of view. And they sort of pointed to three points, if I understood them correctly. Let's pretend that I did. Um, we'll give you the one benefit was, of Yeah. So the first point is very internal, right? So what's this issue that we're dealing with? And can we all agree that there's an issue that if we addressed it, would have some measurable impact for the business, mm-hmm. right? So generally, if they can't agree on what the issue is and they can't agree that it's an issue worth or able to be addressed, things fizzle, you got a no decision, but salespeople weren't even involved at this point. Right. The place that it's most likely to fall apart is once they agree that there's an issue and it's worth addressing, is how do we address it? And again, that's a vendor-free discussion because they're not talking about IBM versus DEC or Microsoft versus Lotus. I'm using old examples. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. (laughs) Because I don't want people to get into the product thing, right? Throwback Thursdays, yeah. Exactly. So it's it's not that. It's are we in a position to address? And if you think about it, that's the greatest time for a salesperson to get in there and do true productless discovery and qualifying. Because really what you're trying to help the customer decide is how are they going to run their business as a result of this issue that they've identified. And that's where the deal is most likely to fall apart because they can't create consensus around quote unquote the solution or how to address it. And I think that's where a salesperson can act in a very proactive way to help Mm -hmm. build that consensus. It's least likely to fall apart on vendor selection because by that time they've decided, which is the third point, they've decided they're going to do something Picking a vendor is almost the easiest thing in the whole chain. Mm -hmm. So salespeople put a disproportionate focus on that third element. But by that time, their fate has been decided. And the only way they're going to save things is by discounting things. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think that I I sort of simplified even a little further, just again, based on my experience. Yeah, based on my experience and the research that I've done is, is that... That's really a decision as a two-step process. I mean, the first two steps you talked about are really part of the go-no-go decision. Absolutely. And, and so that, yeah, is largely vendor-free. It doesn't mean it's entirely vendor-free. I mean, what I urge people to do it's is... It's product-free. It's product-free, right. So what I urge, urge sellers to do is say, look, you've got... I sort of frame it a little different. I said, you've got a sale and you've got an order. And your job is to win the sale. If you win the sale, you get the order. And the way you win the sale is you're the one that helps them make that go, no-go decision, right? That they see there's a path, a solution, a way to achieve what they want to achieve that is going to get them where they want to go. And the vendor that helps them be the base or is the basis for their go, no-go decision, then they go to step two, which is, okay, who are we going to do it with? Well, if you're in the lead at that point, right, you're going to win. And, and that's the thing. I don't know if I've used this expression in, in our previous conversations, but I have this expression where I tell salespeople to leave their product in the car. You mm-hmm. know, if it's summertime, leave the window open a little bit so it could breathe. <laughs> but, you know, go in there with like, you know, a blank canvas, you know, a new set of brushes, some color palettes, and let's paint this picture together with the customer, mm-hmm. right? 
And as you say, and I like your analogy, so I'm going to use it, that if you can get them to make the go, no go, I'm not saying it's a slam dunk, but you're in the lead. Yeah. I mean, you're in the lead and, and it's yours to lose basically. And, yeah, basically. and, and companies will, I know sellers will go to great lengths sometimes to lose it. But generally if you're, in, <laughs> if you're in, the, in the right position at that point in time, then yeah, I mean, your, your odds of winning are up substantially. And, the, and I think there's been research, uh, I think it was Forrester talked about uh, if you were the, in a business, business to business uh, context, if you're the, the seller or the vendor that basically shapes the customer's buying vision, you know, the vision of what it is they're going to buy, that your odds of winning, and that's, that is that, that thing that informs them before they make the go, no go decision, that your odds of winning are like 65%. For so sure. so that's that's pretty substantial lead, right? Right. But that takes work. And, and I don't mean that facetiously, sure. but you know, it does involve and again I say it humorously, I mean bungee jumping without your product, you know, to go in there and just have a business conversation with somebody, you know, with some informed, you know, things based on the product and the vertical that you're in and so on. But I think that's what you know. People need to be to be trained on more effectively than some of the things you know that I'm asked to come in and train them on. Yeah. So the bungee jumping without your product. So explain that. Well, again, most of us are very comfortable with the product, right? So this notion of going in and having a business uh-huh. conversation with somebody and not relying on your product. So going in and having that conversation, and you know, you alluded to my gap thing. You know, I again, like when I go in and try and sell my prospecting program, I won't talk to them about my prospecting. I just ask them a simple question. How much of your business now comes from existing customers versus brand new? Mm-hmm. And they'll give me a number and I'll go, great. So if I look at the 2018 plan, what did you have in your plan? And they'll give me a number and it's never been the same number, right? Sure. So now they've put a gap on the table and now I can noodle around with it and I can ask a whole bunch of questions that don't relate to my product at all. Like, what do you attribute it to? And what would it mean to the business if you actually achieved those objectives that you had set out? And by now, they can't put that genie back in the bottle, Mm -hmm. right? So they kick me out of the office or they deal with it, right? So at that point, you have to also explore what's the downside? Because most people's natural or default state is going to be status quo, right? So they're not going to do anything about it until there's a gun to their head. So that's, again, part of the reason it goes to no decision is, yeah, it looks good, but there's not enough impetus for me to take that risk, right? So you have to show them that there's risk in inaction, otherwise they'll default to inaction. Well, or that it's just too difficult to get the information they need to make that decision. And I think more than than people really acknowledge and more than I think the research is showing, that is an issue, right? Mm -hmm. That if if you don't have the business acumen to have this you know, product-less discussion, as you talk about, then, yeah, the customers don't feel like they have the whole picture, right? Just having product information is not the picture that enables them to make a decision. They don't have that vision. And so without that vision, unless you can help them get to that point, they may say, yeah, we're just, you know, it's too early, it's too soon. And, and that's why I go back to, again, it sounds silly and humorous, but I go back to that MBA thing, because you'll actually... 
appreciate some of the case methodology that they might have used, how they approach different things. And if you could just tailor the conversation in that style, they already feel more comfortable opening up to you. And the more information they share with you, the better questions you can ask and the more specific you can get. But as soon as they get a whiff of product, they're going to back up and say, ah, sales guy as opposed to, I don't like the word, but consultant, you know, or business partner, let's say. Yeah, well, here's sort of, to my mind, is sort of the really interesting thing about this discussion in terms of productless discovery and so on, is that it's actually helping more accurately qualify people for your specific product and solution. So if you can really identify and quantify the objectives that someone wants to achieve with their investment in a product or service like yours, then that, and then you can go in and start linking your value to how it's going to help them achieve those objectives. You suddenly you're not just saying, "Look, they want to buy a product sort of like mine." Now it's they want to buy a product that is mine, and that's that's a level of qualification that if you sell anything of any sort of complexity or value or you know high dollar value, you have to get to that level of qualification. If it's any more superficial than that, you're you're not going to get the deal. And I think without getting hippy-dippy and all that, I mean, you are basically <laughs> shaping their vision. You mean they saw a picture of you in your hat? Yeah, talk about, talk well, about. it's no longer there. It's no longer there. I had it times when I come back from vacation, that would disappear. Oh, I think I took a screenshot of it. I'll try to bring that back up. <laughs> there, just for people, who are, people who are watching, listening, uh, Tibor had a vacation profile picture on Facebook that... Uh, could have been taken, uh, gosh, I think at a Steppenwolf concert back in the late 1960s. Yeah, Steppenwolf's good. You know, they were one of my first favorite bands. Oh, uh, maybe Bach, Bachman Turner Overdrive. I should be Canadian about the whole thing. Steppenwolf is Canadian. They're a Toronto band. Nobody really? knows that. They're I, thought they, actually were, I thought they were Chicago. No, no, no. They're a Toronto band who, to make it, went to the States and they're identified with being out of California, but they came out of Oshawa, which is an eastern suburb of Toronto. All right. And the guy, the guy who wrote Born to be Wild is Canadian. Wow. Okay. We, we, all, we all have learned something new today. Take that tariff, man. Ta- uh. <laughs> That's right. We're going to post a tariff on Canadian songs next, Jess. That's right. Gordon no, Lightfoot. No more No more Joni Mitchell, Gordon Lightfoot. Just think yeah, they put a tariff. Put a tariff on no more. put a tariff on Ryan Ryan Reynolds. Think how expensive tickets tickets would be for Deadpool too. Better yet, for the millennials in the audience, no more Drake. True. Well, that's not just millennials. Drake, Drake is Canadian. I know Drake is well, Canadian, but that, his, I mean, his but music is home for the SDRs, you know. His music's not just for millennials, just FYI. Right. And it's not just for Canadians, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but back to discovery. Yeah, yeah. We digress. Well, we could. So a couple of things I think people need to to take away is one is qualification is not it's it's not superficial. It doesn't happen in the first call. As we were talking about today, if if what you have to do is do your your, we'll say the gap analysis, do your, your basic discovery analysis, quantify the impact of what the customer wants to achieve, their objectives. This is a conversation that has to take place with a senior level person, and it doesn't take place on a first call. So that's the other thing about qualification that really drives me nuts is the, especially inside sales teams think, oh yeah, my SDR is passing a qualified lead onto my AE, and then 
not enough qualification takes place after that. It's, it's just qualified to the extent that's qualified for the next conversation. It's not qualified to be a buyer of your product or service. So you have to really think that you may not really finish qualification till heck, maybe step before putting giving them a proposal. And that's okay. And I think that as a mindset, they should take on what you're saying now, which is to continue to qualify throughout because, you know, you could think that it looks like something, but we've all seen circumstances change immediately and, and you know, mm-hmm. different inputs come in and so on. So you need to continue to qualify and requalify throughout the process. And I think that to some degree, and, and maybe this is not in the same context, so we can park it if it's not, but I talk a lot in very specific terms around prospecting that a job of a good salesperson when they're prospecting is to disqualify opportunities. Mm-hmm. Because we tend to, again, we people tend to find what they're looking for. And one of the things right. I've always found on the downside of qualifications, it tells you what you're looking for. So all of a sudden, things are going to look what, at what you're looking for. But like my close ratio is roughly four to one. So if I could disqualify the three that are not going to close based on circumstances, that gives me a lot more bandwidth and energy to focus on the one that looks like it's qualified. Mm-hmm. I still have to continue to qualify it. So I think what I like to see some companies do is to give their people permission to disqualify someone and look at it from that perspective. Because right. I could always shoehorn things in that look good. but if if I was made to eliminate anything that doesn't look good, I think I'd get to the issue a lot quicker. Yeah, to the extent that that you you arm your your people in the field, or if you are in the field yourself, is arm yourself with a checklist. And the mm-hmm. checklist could be something as simple as you know five to ten essential characteristics out of your ideal candidate or ideal customer profile. And if the person you're talking to, their company doesn't fit even one of them, then you disqualify them. I mean, you really, you really have to be very disciplined and, and rigid about disqualification, as you talk about. And that is something happened in the first call. And I think that one way to do that is to put a greater emphasis on salespeople's time for them. Because if they, if they understood that Leads are recyclable. So if you don't qualify today by whatever standard that might be in place, you don't leave the face of the planet. I could always revisit Andy in six months or Mm -hmm. if there are changes in the market, um, you know, if there's a trigger event, for lack of a better thing, um, I can always revisit you. (laughs) Your your favorite phrase. (laughs) uh, My favorite. Um, So you should watch a podcast uh, that I did a while ago. But anyway. I I read about it, yeah. So... um, but if, if I could accept the fact that I can't get back the last five minutes, no matter what I did with it, but I could always revisit a prospect. All of us have had customers that we saw two, three years ago, several conversations went over mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they're a customer now. I have a client that I can't name, name right now, but they're fairly big. I've chased them for the last four years, right? Things came together, finally happened, right? Sure. But so those are recyclable, but there would have been no point in me hanging on to them for the first three and a half years because they didn't qualify. And you just need to be old enough to say that, you know what, it's not the right time. So rather than hanging on for dear life, which is what I think what some people call qualification, um, just let it go and come back to them. We have wonderful tools with which to keep those people interested and focused in us, right. but 
you need to talk to people who are ready to sign a check this quarter. Yeah, what you always have to keep in mind is is the time you spend focusing on fit is repaid with the higher close rate, a higher decision rate, if you will, then leading to a higher close rate. And so fit, like I said, is very focused, very important. So yeah, I, I said just use a checklist if you're concerned, you know, in your first first call, and you'll make sure you cover all your bases. If you guys, like if you've got five key criteria the prospect must meet that are part of your ideal customer profile, go through the checklist, ask them the questions so they don't fit it. To your point, maybe they will later on. And I think that those questions, the challenge for some salespeople is that they think that they have to go in and ask those questions interrogation style. So number three, I checked it off. Number four, if you can make those conversational. So again, going back to, if I can ask these questions in a business style as opposed to an interrogation style, the customer, I think, will open up and share a lot of other things that you didn't even have on your checklist that will either help you qualify or disqualify them. Yeah, if you just do it as a interrogation, as you talk about, then, yeah, you're, you're not going to be interesting to the buyer. Yeah. And I think the other, which is, it's going to sound funny, but I think the other is just a lot of salespeople have forgotten the mechanics of a sales call, like the notion of taking notes and, and what it does. And, and, you know, not realizing that the physical act of me taking notes is going to encourage the other person to talk because I look interested, right? Right. And then the other is that if the well, other person... Well, the, the, key, the key to being interesting is to demonstrate an interest in somebody, a curiosity and interest in them. So, Yeah. And I think the other, which is a very mechanical thing, but it's a combination of things that make a successful salesperson, is sometimes we'll ask a really good question and the customer gives a really good answer. And because the salesperson gets so excited because they have this simpatico thing happening all of a sudden, they'll interrupt them as soon as they say something relevant. And the first time the customer will let you get away with it. And the second time they'll go, well, this guy keeps interrupting me. And by the third time, they'll say he's not interested in what I have to say. So when you get those magic words, as I call them, just write them down on the corner of your page, right? Mm-hmm. And five, six minutes later, you can come back to it and say, you know, Andy, earlier you mentioned that you had this, that, and the other. And you'll actually verify to the guy that you're listening and that you're taking things in and you're understanding and you're connecting the dots as opposed to getting excited and blurting out something as soon as he says the magic word, Right. So I think there's this, mecha- and I don't blame salespeople because again, it, it takes effort to get in front of the right person. So you're, you know, you're in the game, you're on the field, there's a lot of adrenaline things. So I don't blame them for getting excited, but I think somebody should teach them that there's things you could do physically in, in a sales meeting that will encourage a conversation that will help you qualify or disqualify somebody more effectively. And to your point earlier, a lot of that gets back to educating people about the usage of their time. And yeah, you know, there's a, a price to be paid. We all pay. We all pay it if we devote time to something that is not uh, going to be profitable for us, doesn't lead to the outcome that we want to lead to, or you know any of these situations. It just become sort of a waste of time. And as you said, it's you can't get those last five minutes back, um, and those start adding up. Yeah. So one of the things I talk to salespeople about is that. Time management is a really stupid concept, right? 
uh, because time already comes managed, right? So you got seven days to a week, 52 uh, weeks to a year, you know, so even, you know, Hillary and Trump can agree on that much, right? But, so people tend to frustrate <laughs> are, themselves. Are you, are, you, are you delving into U.S. politics? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just saying that even the Chinese and the Canadians can agree on All right, 24 hours in the day, right? Whether you're on the lunar calendar or whether you're on the Gregorian calendar, we can all agree on this. Yes. Let me phrase it differently. Even, you know, even Mahmoud Abbas and Netanyahu can agree on that much. How's all right, that? there you go taking it to different routes, right? So I think what people should be focused on is what are they allocating their time to and then managing their activity within the time that they allocate it. So when I sit down with salespeople and I say, for you to be successful in your role as a salesperson for your company, what are the key high value activities that you have to perform throughout the cycle? So not like, what do I do between nine and 10, but you know, throughout the cycle, you're going to have to prospect throughout the cycle. You're going to have to sell people that you've prospected. And then if we do our job, we're going to have to manage those accounts and, you know, encourage upsell retention, what have you. And then there's a bunch of other things that are specific to different industries and salespeople. Most salespeople don't know how they should split that time up, where they should invest. And I literally use this expression mm-hmm. within that you have 1,760 hours in a year, 220 sales days times eight hours that you can have FaceTime with customers, right? So that should be looked at as investment capital. Mm-hmm. Right? So at $1,760, my company has given me a quota of 10%. So that's the return that they want on their investment capital. So if you go see a, a money manager or a personal financial guy or whatever, the first thing they're going to ask you is, what are your risk tolerance? What are, what are you looking to achieve? So, and so on, so they can allocate parts of your money to equity, parts of your money right. to derivatives and so forth. We don't do that in sales yet. If you think about it, that is our investment capital is our time. I invest and spend. Mm-hmm. And I literally use the word spend my time is going to dictate how successful I'm going to be. And Skills and everything comes into it, but if I misspend that time, then I'm beat from the get-go. That's that's a really interesting concept to think about it that way in terms of of uh, sort of the money and investment mon- investment metaphor, actual investment metaphor, you know, dollar investment metaphor. Um, yeah, yeah, I like that. I have to think about that. I mean, that that's that's very clever. Yeah, there's a, I have an ebook out. There and don't worry about the acronym, but it's called Sales Happen in Time. So it describes all that. Oh, really? Okay. Well, how do people find that? We're we're actually at the end of our end of our time here. So why don't you let's finish with that? Tell people to find that ebook. It's unfortunately it's one of the things that I've yet to post on the new Tiborshanto.com ah, website. Yes. Still it used me. to be up on the old site. And if you go there, sellbetter.ca, you'll get redirected. Unfortunately, I've yet to post this because I'm still doing things. So we can do one of two things. They could send you an email and you can forward it to me and or you can they can come directly to me. Either way, I'm happy to make it. At sellbetter.ca. Okay. No, 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 no. That's dead now. It's oh, Tiborshanto.com. I'm sorry. Didn't want to give the yeah, bad okay. info. It's hard to keep track. Tiborshanto. Yes. Well, I'll make it easy. First name, last name, no dot, dot com. Yeah. Perfect. So. All right. But... Um, I'm trying to think where it's out there, but uh, if they get in touch with you or they get in touch with me, I'm happy to make it available. I could send you a copy and you can. And what's, what's your, your email address is tibor at tiborshanto.com. I thought I'd make it easy. Perfect. Perfect. I love it. That's T I B O R S H A N T O.com. All right. Tibor at tiborshanto. All right. Well, Tibor, as always, fantastic talk with you. 
Thank you. Always uh, enjoy it. Yeah, we'll have to do this again before too long. Of course. Anytime. Okay, friends, that was Accelerate for this week. First of all, I want to thank you for joining me. And I want to thank my guest, Tibor Shanto. Join me again next week as I welcome Jeffrey Shaw to Accelerate. Jeffrey is the author of a book titled Lingo. Discover your ideal customer's secret language and make your business irresistible. So make sure you join me for that. Don't forget also to go check out The Sales House. That's at thesaleshouse.com forward slash join. We'll look forward to seeing you there. Thanks again for joining me. Until next week, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.